Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Along with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And fear not, despite living in America, this is one Anglo-Irishman who will not be serenading anyone with Aerosmith tunes or indeed any other type of tunes at the triumphant conclusion of this podcast. (laughs) Uh, I we are all quite glad to hear that, uh, obviously, and it's uh, it's a perfect setup for a question that I want to ask you to uh, to kick off the show. Uh, I was told there would be no questions. <laughs> you were misinformed. There is a question, and it might be a tough one. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe uh, you'll have a quick and easy answer. Maybe not. Um, but it's a it's one of those would you rather questions, uh, yeah. Kieran. So uh, drop in. Here we go. Uh, would you rather? Have Tyson Fury serenade you in person every day with the entire first verse and chorus of his rather painful version of that fairly (laughs) atrocious Aerosmith song. Or have Deontay Wilder scream bomb squad right in your face as loud as he can once a day every day. Which which form of torture do you choose? Actually, you know what? I don't find that very hard. I actually put I mean, looking at it contextually now after day two, I might change. (laughs) But or possibly after day one. But honestly, I think in the context of particularly having gone through a somewhat athletic endeavor and all of that and it being, you know, a cappella, I don't think he's that bad of a singer, Mr. Fury. That's a hot take. Hot take right there. (laughs) That is a hot take. Like, I'm not going to go out and like buy an album or anything. Or right. download. He's, he's no Al Bernstein. I think we can agree. He on is that. no Al Bernstein. That, oh, but I would. Can you imagine if Al were to do a show? We need to pitch this to Ooh. him and bring Tyson I up like for a, bring Tyson up for a guest spot. I think I think this is a thing we need to start working on. Yes, little, little bit of crossover, perhaps before the rematch, should it happen with Mr. Wilder. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 down for setting that up. Uh by whatever means necessary. But can we at least agree that that Aerosmith song really sucks? Like, I'm, I'm neither pro nor con Aerosmith in general, but right. there there are 10 or 12 Aerosmith songs that I, that I would tolerate Is that lo- the same long one before that to one. Is go to? Yes, it's, it, the, it's, it it's the same song. That's, that's what I'm saying. Mix it up a little. You know, give, right. if you're singing your wife, throw, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, a little change of pace with that. Why not? There you go. Boy, that was the that was the most in-depth and off-topic introduction we've had to one of these podcasts yet. Hmm. Debatable. We've gone off-topic a fair, fair few times, I think. <laughs> I feel like we were both passionately engaged about this one and a degree yes. which neither of us would necessarily want to admit, but there you go. <laughs> All right. Um, we're going to get back to some boxing soon. Uh, coming up later in the show... We will be previewing this Friday Showbox triple header with the help of a very special guest who we're very happy to have. Um, we'll also look at boxing news around the world. But first, a quick roundup of this weekend's main fights. We begin in Las Vegas. If you have absolutely no idea what happened in Las Vegas this Saturday, then the previous three and a half minutes are just <laughs> even less comprehensible than usual. But hopefully it will all come together. Uh, the heavyweight triple header that has been playing out over the last month or so came to a close in one-sided style at the MGM Grand Garden Arena. Tyson Fury dominating Tom Schwartz, stopping him in the closing seconds of the second round. Uh, Eric, look, Fury looked good for sure, right? He was lean. Um, he moved well. He went for the finish when he had the opportunity. He hasn't always done that. But um, one hates to be that person. But nonetheless, uh, how much of this was Fury being very good and how much of this was Schwartz being very not good? Well, first of all, about uh, Fury being lean, I'll note it's that a, I was surprised by his weight. Uh, yeah, right. It, it is on a curve, but even by the, his curve, uh, his curves, uh, which I'm now uh, spending uh, too much time visualizing in my mind. But he, I was surprised that he came in at 263, which was six and a half pounds heavier than he was against Wilder. I guess it maybe it was distributed a tad better uh, in this fight than it was he in the previous one. He did mention one. he put on muscle. He did right. that deliberately. That's, that, to, right. Yeah. That's what he was saying. But still, it was kind of a, a reminder that you don't really know quite how thin or not th- thin right. someone is until his shirt comes off. Yeah. Um, because based on seeing his face in the build up to the fight. Yes. I was really expecting him to be under 250. Yeah. Um, but that's all very much beside the point here. Uh, look, uh, Tom Schwartz is not good. Uh, at least not relative to world-class heavyweights. 
he was completely unprepared for this step up, completely undeserving. So because of the level that Schwartz is at, this win didn't prove anything, but Fury still looked fantastic. Um, There's a worry with Fury that when he fights, unlike a Wilder whose easy wins are almost always going to be entertaining and impressive, that an easy Fury win can be ugly and unimpressive. And that was not at all the case here. Um, He's a wonderfully skilled heavyweight. We, We know that. And Schwartz allowed him to show those skills. And Fury seemed motivated to impress. And he did. And he sent everyone home happy. You know, I I think that most people would agree that Dominic Brazil is better uh, or at least far more proven than Tom Schwartz. Mm. Um, But, you know, Fury's not a huge puncher. He's rarely going to give you that highlight reel one punch knockout. So to stop Schwartz in two rounds and get to show off a lot of his offensive and defensive skills in the process, that's really all you could have asked for from him in a mismatch like this. So. I'm inclined to give Fury the bulk of the credit. Uh, Schwartz was way out of his depth, but I think this result was more about Fury performing to the best of his abilities than Schwartz just being a terrible challenger, even if he was a terrible challenger by the standards of of this level of fighter. You know, it it could have been a bore. It wasn't. Uh, Fury really entertained. And, you know, there really isn't anybody in boxing quite like Fury. His movement... Uh, especially the upper body is not at all what you'd expect from a six foot nine inch heavyweight. He throws punches in a way that they don't seem to have great leverage on them, but he can hurt guys when he lands. And of course, he certainly brings something different in terms of the overall show. Uh, And this was all uh, hinted at at the top of the podcast from dressing like Apollo Creed to singing that cheesy ass Aerosmith song in the ring (laughs) after he wins. It isn't for everybody. And I know you've been resistant to Tyson Fury's charms in the past. Is that stance changing at all of late? Yeah, first of all, I've got to say, I did think that the ring entrance was a little bit overhyped. From the way that Joe and Max were talking about it, I thought like he was going to come in on a flying carpet and there would be <laughs> elephants and the elephants were going to be on flying carpets and it was going to be <laughs> the greatest thing you'd ever seen. But it was cool, right? It was just, it was fun. But yeah. nonetheless, it was, it, it, they made it sound as if it by itself was going to be worth the price of admission. Like, but anyway, that's just a mild diversion. But anyway, that's just... <laughs> but I agree. I, I agree with that. It was, it that. was not quite as unusual or spectacular as advertised, right. but it was fine. It was fun. It was fine. It was yeah. perfectly fine. Yeah. Other British fighters have done better ring entrances. You've been there for at least one of them. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Yes. Right. Anyway, back to the point. Um, <laughs> yes. Is my chance, is my stance changing? Yes. Somewhat. Yes. I think it's fair to say it is, to be honest. Um, I think a, Part of the key for me is that over the last couple of years, this this new phase of Tyson Fury, for one, it's he's holstered the offensive remarks that he would be coming out with with some frequency in the past. And I don't know whether, you know, he that's better media management or he's simply able to control his urge to say stupid crap. Or maybe he's just grown and involved. You know, right. he's, he, it's hard to believe, but he's only 30 years old. Um, you know, when he was doing all that spouting off a few years back, he was still a kid, basically. Um, but yeah, I guess also I, it took me a while. I think the last time around version 1.0, if you will, I just didn't get it. You know, a lot of people would say, oh, is any he funny? He's calling people dosses. Isn't he great? And I just thought, no, I just think he's a dick. <laughs> and I just I just felt that there was a bit of an underlying nastiness to it all, which, okay, fair enough, it's boxing. Um, I mean, Deontay Wilder just the other week was talking about wanting a dead body on his resume after all. Right. But it does seem to me, I don't think it's just for show. I th- it does really feel to me that since he's found some emotional and mental wellness, there seems to be a far greater lightness to it all. And, you know, you talked about it, the fact that, for example, he was able to make a one-sided drubbing quite entertaining. And, and like, he's, it feels like there's more joy about the way he, he goes about it all, which mm-hmm. might seem a funny thing to really want to appreciate in boxing. But mm-hmm. I like the fact that he's going in there to entertain and, and to be entertaining and to entertain himself while also now showing, I thought, a, a real respect for his uh, opponents. You know, that, that seems to be there too. So, and, you know, look, as, as somebody who, look, I 
struggle with the the black shroud myself a lot and and i certainly on a personal level have appreciated his his you know his comments and his openness about depression and mental health and it's hard not to warm to somebody who's doing that so Hmm. and then add to that honestly i'd have to be pretty obtuse to not be appreciative of as you said, some of the quite unique things that he does do in the ring. There is, it, sometimes it doesn't always come off, right? Sometimes that style, like you said already, it, it can be a bit stinky. But when it does come off, it's, I mean, my God. I mean, yes, it was Tom Schwartz, but just the way he was dodging those punches against yes. the ropes, that was, that was a sight to behold. And it's quite amazing. You just don't expect a man of that build to fight in that way. And, and he was clearly having fun in the ring, and that was... I think everybody except for Thomas Schwartz is probably having fun on on Saturday night with it. And yeah, he he there there he is bringing the whole package to it now. And maybe it's just that I didn't get it before. I wasn't fully appreciative of it. Or perhaps we've all changed. Perhaps it's not just Tyson Fury who's changed. Maybe I have. Maybe yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe I'm just more appreciative of these things. But yes, I am. Some I'm finding it hard to not warm up to Tyson Fury. Let me put it that way. Yeah, uh, to, to bring it back to uh, Rocky IV with the, the Living in America entrance, if if he can change and you can change, we all can change. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, see how I did that? <laughs> yeah, you didn't even know I was going to be doing all of that, so that was a spontaneous kind of uh, kind of thing there. Yeah. That's very good. The whole very podcast good. is spontaneous. What are you talking about? Yes, yes, that's what, exactly. <laughs> Pauses for laughter. <laughs> Done um, laughing, proceed. Right. Uh so anyway, we just mentioned Deontay Wilder. Uh, as we know, as we've discussed, Deontay Wilder next takes on Luis Ortiz, it seems, probably in September. Uh, Fury, from what he was saying, will certainly have at least one more fight this year. Uh, I think he said also September or October. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometime in 2020, as we've also talked about, including with our boss, Steven Espinosa, uh, these two should rematch. Um After this, after this little sequence of heavyweight fights that we've had, after watching Wilder... And, and Fury uh, dispatched their foes quite easily. Are you okay with that timeline of events? Or would you rather see it accelerated? Forget Lu- If it were possible, forget Luis Ortiz. Mm-hmm. Forget the September date for Tyson Fury. Let's get these two back in the ring. No, I, I'm totally okay with this particular timeline, this, this sequence of events. Uh, I wanted them to have an immediate rematch. Uh, when that was looking like the plan, it was warranted. It was a hot fight. But once that didn't happen, is there really a difference between having one fight in between or two fights in between? There's risk, of course. Wilder could lose to Ortiz. Fury could lose this fall. Or one of them could suffer an injury that delays things. But so far, everything is breaking the right way for the business upside to be mm. worth the risk. Uh, you had Wilder knocking out Brazil as spectacularly as you could ask for. You have Fury looking great against Schwartz. You had both of them getting a lot of mainstream publicity from Fury's interview tour to Wilder's KO leading sports center. And you had Andy Ruiz upsetting Anthony Joshua, which both brought more attention to the division and significantly increased the possibility that Wilder Fury 2 is a meeting of the two best heavyweights. Which brings me to something I've been wanting to discuss. Um, I was mildly surprised to see a lot of media outlets ranking Andy Ruiz number one in the heavyweight division after his KO of Joshua. Mm. Uh, Boxing News has Ruiz number one. BoxRec has him number one. And the Transnational Boxing Rankings Board, which I will contribute my opinion to from time to time, elevated Ruiz to number one also. I disagree. Um, It was a great win by Ruiz, certainly, but I think Fury has the best resume in the division. He was the first of his generation to beat Klitschko. He did it before Joshua. That won him the legit title. Um, And I thought, and a majority of people thought, Fury was ahead of Wilder on points after 12 rounds, even though he Mm -hmm. came away with a draw. Um, But that fight was close enough that I wouldn't separate Fury and Wilder in my rankings. So to me, based on resume, which is how you're supposed to rank fighters in a division, this isn't pound for pound, these are division Mm -hmm. rankings. For me, it's Fury number one, Wilder number two, Ruiz three, Joshua four. Um, Now, there's some debate over whether Fury is still the lineal champ because he voluntarily retired, though it proved temporary. That's a complicated discussion, and I have no idea what the right answer it really is. Uh, But he's certainly at least the closest thing we have to a lineal champ right now. 
I rank him number one. I don't see a great case for ranking Ruiz number one right now, and no, you know, quantity of alphabet belts is certainly not a deciding factor. Um, I may have strayed off topic a bit here, uh, as as we tend to do, uh, but the point is because we're so spontaneous, <laughs> right? Exactly because of all the spontaneity, it leads us off topic from time to time. Uh, but the the point is to me for now. Fury and Wilder are number one and number two, and if it stays that way, their rematch should determine the legit champ. I don't know if you agree or if you have found better things to do with your time than think about this stuff. I hope for your sake you have, uh, but that's how I feel the top four deserve to be ranked. Yeah, no, that seems that seems fair, and one thought that does occur to me is, uh, did you ever imagine, say, 18 months ago that you would consider Deontay Wilder the number two, indeed, maybe just 1A heavyweight in the world without without a scenario in which every other heavyweight was terrible. It's, right. Yeah, <laughs> no, a, I mean... It's taken a while. If, yeah. if it's taken me a while to warm up to Mr. Fury, it's taken a while for you to warm up to Deontay, I think. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I uh, hopefully all the, uh, all the old recordings uh, of me scoffing <laughs> at the idea of him being like a top three heavyweight have been... Uh, have been lost somewhere on the internet, have fallen into an internet black hole or, or something. But um, but no, I, I, I took a while to come around uh, until maybe three or four fights ago, I finally started to say, okay, maybe this guy's really good. His technique is still not far from textbook, but I have to appreciate what he's doing in there. And uh, yeah, to me, I, I think he is, like you said, either, he, I have him number two, but it's, it's almost 1A-ish. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, and I think, I wonder if... I agree with you, I think, actually, in terms of one, two, three, four. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if the fact that so many folks have Ruiz as number one, it's sort of tied in a little bit to that lineal issue because there was that sense, I think, that, you know, in during Fury's absence that AJ established himself as the number one guy. Mm -hmm. um, and and perhaps that Fury ha and Wilder hadn't done enough to displace him from that, and therefore Ruiz by beating him became the number one guy where, you know, so I, I assume that that's where the thought process is there. And, and it is the whole lineal thing in this particular instance is interesting because Fury's retirement seemed so real and legitimate and his issues were so significant that it felt as if he was gone. And, and that Joshua Klitschko, it seemed reasonable to say, well, the, the lineal champ is gone. And so therefore, this, if this guy beats the previous lineal champ, perhaps he's the lineal champ. And right. so, did his did Fury's disappointment disappearance break the lineal chain, and did his coming back reestablish it? I, I kind of wonder if the if the answer might be yes to both of them a little bit, actually. So um, yeah, it, it's tricky. The only thing that I'll I'll say is that I that it's either Fury or it's vacant. There, I don't see any reasonable case that Joshua had become the lineal champ. He may have mm. become the number one, but, but, but I didn't think there was any real case. You, because you felt he hadn't done enough to like, say had he beaten Wilder and Fury were still absent, you would feel that. Maybe right. It, right. It was, he, he beat Klitschko who was coming off a loss already. And so not to minimize beating Klitschko, but it was not like a care sure. of case of this is clear. Number one and number two uh, coming into that fight. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel that, right, he was like a, a Fury win or a Wilder win away from really having some kind of lineal case. But, yeah, what to do with lineal champ says he's retired, then lineal right. champ comes back and has never been beaten in the ring. Is he still the lineal champ? Uh, I don't know. Hopefully Fury Wilder, too. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. Gives crowns a lineal that. champ, uh, whether it's a vacant title or it's uh, Fury defending that title, to, depending exactly. on your perspective. And then hopefully the winner ends up fighting the winner of Ruiz and Joshua rematch, and then right. it's just we're a, we don't have to worry about these. Things. Right. All this whole conversation is uh, totally useless uh, in the in the rearview mirror once all that happens. If Again. if not if not already useless. If not already. Exactly. Um, and you know one more thing just uh, on on this subject of them having this rematch in 2020. You know if they keep winning. It is a much bigger fight. Now, Bob Arum is talking out of his ass about it being the biggest pay-per-view ever. That's ludicrous. Although it's smart promotion. You, you call something the biggest ever, and that helps sell it in the minds of some casual fans. But it right. does seem on track to be bigger and make more money in the spring of 2020 than it would have in the spring of 2019. Yeah, that's that's fair enough, right? Because I think more casual people are aware now simply of, of Deontay Wilder and of Tyson Fury than they were a month ago. So I think that, and so one can only imagine that they'll do better 
in the interim if they don't lose. Right. So, so yeah. <laughs> big I, asterisk, I, but yes. Big asterisk, yes, exactly. Yeah. But no, fair point. Okay. Uh, back to the Las Vegas card on Saturday night. Uh, two other fights of note. Michaela Mayer uh, remained undefeated with a unanimous points win over Lisbeth Crespo. And you pretty much called the co-main event right on the money. You hemmed and you hawed and you had lots of maybes when you talked about this last <laughs> week. But you ultimately leaned toward Jesse Hart over Sullivan Barrera and the younger Hart did score a close but clear decision. Any thoughts on either of those fights? So that co-main was an odd sort of a fight, I thought. Um, you know, for the first five or six rounds, it was sloppy at times, but frequently fun and exciting. And then I thought over the back half, it was just sloppy. Um, I admit, I, I, there was a point where I actually laughed out loud over Andre Ward's commentary. He said, in the, I think it was in the seventh, he just goes, well, I guess Jesse Hart has just decided he isn't going to throw any more jabs. And it was just the way that he said it in that kind of like snarky Andre sort of sort of way that did just like make me chuckle. Um, Hart did say afterwards that he damaged his hand in the seventh, which I guess would actually explain why, you know, he had Barrera in such trouble in the sixth. Um, It would explain why, you know, unless there were conditioning issues, he, he appeared to, you know, sort of really ease up down the stretch. Barrera, alas for me, feels like the, with this he might be starting to enter gatekeeper status a little yeah, bit yeah. um uh but i don't know for me uh, the jury's still out a little bit on jesse hart's ceiling i still can't quite decide how good he is i don't know about you but um i'm i, I don't know well we shall see I'm, I'm not convinced he's a he's that real top level i don't know that he's a threat to like the vojdiks right. and the bivols of the world personally Right. The the fact that he was kept it close and competitive against Zerto twice, um, you know, says that he's at least close to that top level. But yeah, could he get over that hump against any of the top guys? I, I'm I'm not sure either. Yeah, there was uh, action across the Great Grass Sea as well. Um, in Great, the... Great Grass Sea, do people yes, call sir. it that? Never heard that. Yes, one. yes, yes. Yep. Where's yep. the grass? I don't get the grass element. Well, it was actually just a passing reference to an HBO show, but it was going to be just a passing reference, given that Steven Espinosa is allowed to make passing references. To oh, and now you've okay. ruined the whole thing. <laughs> I suppose I have. Oh, well. A big Dracarys for you, sir. <laughs> See, this is the problem with uh, with, with us improvising and uh, exactly, exactly. You know, trying to be spontaneous. Sometimes things like this happen. Oh, well, exactly. moving yes. on, as you were saying. <laughs> moving on. In Leeds, England, Josh Warrington retained his featherweight title with a split decision over Kid Galahad, who is almost certainly the only pro boxer ever to take his name from an Elvis Presley movie. And he actually really did take his name from an Elvis Presley movie, mm. by the way. Okay. So that was but that movie, of course, obviously called Kid Galahad. Just, <laughs> um, and further east in Riga, Latvia, uh, the final of the second cruiserweight iteration of the World Boxing Super Series is set. Uniel Dortikos will face Maris Bredis after both scored KO wins. Dortikos' was straightforward enough. He cracked Andrew Tabiti with a beautiful right hand in the tent that knocked him cold. Real KO of the year candidate, I think. There, mm-hmm. job done. Nicey. Uh, but then, uh, as for the other semifinal, well, you know, so Bredis winning by stoppage in the third round, and he may very well have run out the winner against Christoph Glovatsky anyway, but the way the fight unfolded, it was just insane a quiet first one and two thirds rounds and then there was a rabbit punch a clinch an illegal elbow three knockdowns i think one of which was way way after the bell (laughs) to end round two um glavatsky's people were furious and with good reason i would say that was a mess. Robert Bird kind of let that one get away from him, I think. He did. It, it was indeed a mess. You know, at, at the start of the second round, um, shortly before the crap hit the fan, the blow-by-blow man noted that Robert Bird is 74 years old. And I was about to tweet out how shocked I was by that. The, he looks great. He moves great. Yep. I would have guessed he was about 10 years younger than he is. I had no idea that was his age. Turns out he has the hearing of a man 10 years older than he is. Um, Look, Bradis 
through that elbow, which was as blatant and illegal elbow as I've ever seen. Yeah. And Bird took control as best he could, I thought, at that point. You know, he didn't buy Glavatsky's acting, which was which good. He basically told him, all right, come on, you're okay, yep. get up. Uh, he took a point, maybe he could have taken two, but, but one point was fine there. So up through that point, no issues with Bird. Then Breda scored a legit knockdown. He almost landed a late punch as Glavatsky was on the canvas, but it, it didn't really land, so all good there. But then the bell was ringing seconds later. Everyone in the arena, it seemed, could hear it except Robert Byrd. And he let Glavatsky take some punishment he never should have taken, suffer a knockdown that shouldn't have counted. It was a disaster. Uh, And then it seemed like Byrd was stopping the fight because Glavatsky's corner had entered the ring. But I guess... Someone informed him that that was all after the bell, so he sort of unstopped the fight. Um, Just a mess. Uh, And as best I can tell, it was all because Bird couldn't hear the bell. And if so, I'm sorry to say it, but he needs to retire from refing fights. Uh, You'll recall something similar happened with Pat Russell in the Bradley Vargas fight, and he took it as a sign uh, that, that he was close to the end. If Bird's hearing is going... That sucks. You know, getting old sucks. Um, but, yeah, you know, he was a top ref for a long time. But if he can't hear the bell, he is a danger to the fighters now. Um, and so uh, and by the way, the Dortikos knockout was sick. Uh, this, is, this is going to be a tremendous fight in the finals, regardless of, of the craziness that got us there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I get it. We've, we've been in arenas where it's so loud you can barely hear the bell. But it sounded as if every other single person there mm-hmm. could hear the bell. So... And, and Breda said afterwards, it is, uh, when he was being interviewed, oh, it sounds like nobody heard the bell. And he's like, no, I heard it. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> Just he, kept fighting. Then exactly. He tells you to stop fighting, you keep fighting. Exactly. Oh. Yep. Yeah. All right. A, a few news items before we, we move on to next weekend's fights and to our guest. Uh, first of all, after a downer of a podcast last week, some good news this week. Zab Judah was released from the hospital on Monday after being admitted with a brain bleed following his TKO loss to Cletus Seldon the previous Friday. In a statement, Starboxing said that, quote, while he will need rest, the prognosis is promising. Uh, we certainly wish Zab well. Another nice bit of news, the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame, which was founded by our friend Rich Murata in 2013, now has a physical home in Las Vegas, which will be opening June 22nd. Congrats to Rich, Michelle Corrales, and everyone else associated with the NVBHOF. And last item here, Claressa Shields announced that she will be returning to the ring in her hometown of Flint, Michigan on August 17th on a Showtime Boxing Special Edition as she takes on Ivana Habazin. Uh, I'm guessing on the pronunciation, we'll we'll Sounds get good. it right by by the time we get closer to the fight. But for now, that's my best guess. Uh, she's taking on uh, on that lady uh, with a name whose pronunciation I will learn in an attempt to win a world title in her third weight class down at 154 pounds. Uh, in addition to learning the pronunciation of the opponent's name, I'm sure we'll have other analysis as that fight draws <laughs> nearer. But for now, anything to comment on? Uh yeah, I mean, look, that's great news about Zab, of course. Um, and also very happy to see uh, the progress in the Nevada Hall. I, I played a really small role in helping those guys get off the ground uh, back in 2013, covered their first events for uh, ESPN. I, I used to um, I used to have a podcast for ESPN, you know, I don't know if you knew that. Uh, amongst <laughs> used to. Things. Used to, yeah. So you yes, don't anymore? Uh, no, you might you might have noticed that, um, that I haven't been quite as active for that lately. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, no, the Nevada boxing community, it's a great community, and uh, I'm really happy that the hall has a place to call its own. Uh, as for Clarissa, I mean, well, what can you say? Look, she wouldn't be the first person to win a title in the third weight division if she wins, but she'd be the first to do it in, would it be 10 fights if she were to do that? Something like that. So. Um, and I can't think of anybody who's won progressive titles in different weights by continually going down in weight. Like someone's got, some have gone up and then down, right? Like gone up a couple of divisions and down one. Is any? I can't think of anyone. Am I missing somebody who's done the win a title in one division, go down a division, and then go down another division? That seems. Yeah, no, I, 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 I believe you're right. You know, I thought you think of Henry Armstrong who jumped up from right. lightweight to well, or sorry, from featherweight to welterweight and then back down to lightweight. Right. Uh, Bob Fitzsimmons, I believe, did them a bit out of order, but I don't think anyone has actually gone big, smaller, smallest in that order. Right. I think not. I think not. I'm looking forward to uh, to us being um, 
ringside when she fights for the lightweight title. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, not too much on the docket for next weekend in terms of fights. A few cards do stand out uh, on Friday from Fantasy Springs Resort and Casino in Indio, California. It's a rematch of uh, one of this year's bigger upsets as Andrew Cancio attempts to make it two from two against Alberto Machado in a 130-pound title fight. That's on DAZN. Uh, alas, as we mentioned a week or two back, we will be denied a second big rematch um, that weekend as Tony Harrison withdrew from his bout with Jamel Charlo. Instead, Charlo will face Jorge Cota on Sunday on Fox. Uh, and then the co-main event on that Fox card is the return of Guillermo Rigondo, who I'm sure will be insisting... And convincing podcasters at the pre-fight press conference that his will be a very exciting fight. I tell you what, Rigo, uh, if it turns out your fight is exciting, I'll let Twitter tell me so, and I'll watch it the following morning. Uh, that's my my <laughs> approach. Look, I mean, look, with Rigo, he's a great talent, but uh, fool me a half dozen times, shame on me. <laughs> um, and as we noted last week, the Harrison injury is a bummer. So easily the most interesting fight of all of these is Cancio Machado, too. That was a really stirring upset in February. Cancio has a great story. He returned to his day job after winning a major title. It's a really intriguing rematch. Uh, Machado, of course, we've been tracking him for a little while now. He's a talented guy. Is Cancio all wrong for him? Or was it circumstance where he took Cancio lightly and won't make the same mistake again? I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, that's one fight I won't wait for Twitter to tell me what happened. Indeed. All righty. Um... Also coming up this Friday, Showbox, the new generation returns with a triple header from the Winner Vegas Casino in Sloan, Iowa. And to talk to us about it and about Showbox more generally, we are very excited to welcome for the first time to the podcast, a member of the Showtime sports crew whom fans at home won't know as well as a Farhood or a Bernstein or the rest of the on-camera talent, but who in many ways, although he's too modest, I'm sure, to acknowledge as much, uh, really the glue who holds together so much of the network's boxing content. Uh, in 2001, he was the founding executive producer of the new Showtime boxing franchise, Showbox, the new generation, and 18 years, almost 250 episodes, and 79 world champions later, it and he are still going strong. He remains executive producer of Showbox and is senior vice president for production for Showtime Sports. Gordon Hall, thanks so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast, and try to live up to that intro, will you? <laughs> you know what? I'm uh, I'm honored to be on this show with you two uh, uh, boxing uh, experts and uh, uh, look forward to uh, uh, our meaningful conversation. Oh, well, that's unfortunate, but we'll, we'll go ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll do what <laughs> he, we he, can. He uses the term experts very loosely, we're learning. And meaningful, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yes. So, Gordon, look, I'm, I'm looking at the list uh, of Showbox alums who've gone on to become world champions. It's an amazing set of names. Uh, Kelly Pavlik's on there, Ricky Hatton, Diego Corrales. Andre Ward, Clarissa Shields, Tyson Fury, uh, a pair of guys called Paulie Malinaji and Deontay Wilder. I don't know whatever happened to them. But um, truly, I mean, look, the list goes on and on. And there's some real Hall of Fame worthy names in there. Um, when you began, did you dare imagine that Showbox could have the longevity and success that it's had? Oh, I'd love to say yes. But uh, <laughs> that would be uh, obviously not the truth. I mean, I don't think that anybody could have imagined, you know, that uh, or thought that a series about unknown fighters uh, in, the, in the infancy of their careers, you know, would take off. But but I do I do think that at the time it was, uh, you know, a series that was unique. Uh, the definition was different. The purpose was different mm. than, you know, any other series that had taken place at the time. Uh, so you know, it was different and unique. And, um, but as you can imagine, can you make competitive matchups? Can mm. you find top prospects? Uh, and we started working, you know, initially with only two promoters in um, main events and uh, Frank Warren promotions. And, uh, but they did have, you know, some top prospects and, uh, and those initial fights the first couple of years we had on Juan Diaz or Jeff Lacey or Ricky Hatton. And matter of fact, even in our first show, we had Leo Durin, who uh, wow. would actually go yeah. on to become a world champion. And, you know, since that time, you know, we've actually had 80 fighters go on and win with uh, Regis Progray just oh, winning course. recently. But, um, and, you know, a number of those fighters fought multiple times, you know, on Showbox. So, um, 
you know, we had the makings for it, I think. Uh, you know, not all of those beginning fights were competitive. And, you know, I would like to have more competitive, but uh, you're only working with, you know, um, two promoters. When we when we started to expand the promoter base, I think it, you know, made the series stronger. Mm. Yeah, you, you noted that the idea w- was different and unique, but different and unique alone isn't always enough, I seem to recall. KO Nation was different and right. unique, uh, launched right around the same time, and that didn't last so long. So it speaks to, you know, the, the quality of the matchmaking and production and, and broadcasting. All of that stuff is very important for uh, a show like this uh, sticking around a while. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it, it is true. And, um, you know, like I was, having the ability to work with more promoters gave us more leverage to make competitive fights. You know, I do believe that it's best for fighters to be batch tough young, you know, to help in their development and get them, you know, where they want to be faster. And, and losses, we've had plenty of fighters lose and go on to have successful careers and, and, and become world champions. It's not a bad thing for a prospect, you know, and it's also, you know, for young prospects, it's good for have them get on TV, you know, under the lights, be exposed to the process of being on TV, the interviews, uh, you know, those are pressure situations that most young fighters, you know, have not yet experienced, but will need to experience, you know, as they further their career. So, uh, you know, we've had a lot of fighters lose on Showbox and go on to win world titles. We've had 187 fighters have their first loss on Showbox. It doesn't mean that they'll they'll not go on and become successful, you know, or win world championships. Losses can can motivate yeah, definitely. So I'm curious about the process that's involved in, in making these cards. When boxers make their showbox debuts, generally very few people in the United States have seen them fight prior to that. So how do you go about assessing whether someone is showbox worthy? Do you go to a lot of club shows and discover fighters that you want to put on the air? Do you watch a lot of video? Do you field a lot of phone calls and accept the recommendations sight unseen sometimes from a trusted source? Is it all of the above? Um, I would say it's all of the above. I have been known to attend uh, a number of Broadway boxings here in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, uh, I've always dealt with, once we talk about certain fighters with promoters, I will go and ask who their matchmaker is. And I, primarily deal with the matchmakers. I don't need to deal, you know, um, I do look, thank gosh, we have, we have, you know, Google, we have a lot of, uh, you know, years ago, it's funny because no one really talked a lot about, a lot about prospects years ago, but I remember Dan Raphael had a prospects to watch list and I would literally look at them. And at the end of the year, or maybe two years, I would go back and I'd to see how many of those guys that I was able to get on Showbox, And I, you know, probably was, you know, had got half of them at least, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, a lot of what I learned does come from, you know, club shows. It comes from talking with the matchmakers, doing research, talking with the promoters, you know, who pitch, you know, knowing what we're looking for. And, uh, you know, speaking to people in the industry, like if it's, you two, or we, you know, we run into each other or something, or we might start talking boxing, or did you see this guy, or did you see that guy, or this girl, or that girl, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the people who follow the sport on a, on a daily basis, but, you know, the first thing you look at, you know, is prospects amateur career, you know, that helps to determine really how tough they can be matched. You know, we're seeing so many Eastern European and Hispanics and, you know, fighters that have 300 or more amateur fights. And, you know, there's no question that they're, you know, when dealing with the promoter that, uh, that fighter's ready for a step up fight. Uh, so, um, you know, it's a number of things that go into it. It's a lot easier now than it was 18 years ago. <laughs> right. Uh, but, um, you know, it's something that with having fighters on that, uh, do have those, you know, whether it's a, you know, Sergey Durovinchenko or an Ivan Baranchik, they had, you know, they had, you know, hundreds of fights. Uh, we had them on Showbox, and not long after that, you know, they're they're fighting for world titles before they've even had 20 fights. I mean, um, on the American side, you see a lot of fighters that don't necessarily have, you know, hundreds of amateur fights, but um, 
you know, there's certainly, you know, we recently had uh, Ruben Vila. He had, uh, I think, about 180, you know, amateur fights, and he beat Devin Haney and Shakur Stevenson in the amateurs. That's a guy you know. I want to find right. out, how do we get this person on? Oh, he's with, Tan- right. you know, Artie Palulo and, and, and Thompson Boxing. And, uh, you know, we, we want to get those fighters on Showbox. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the latest edition of Showbox coming up this Friday uh, from the Winner Vegas Casino in Sloan, Iowa. Um, it opens with a scheduled uh, eight-rounder in the lightweight division, undefeated Colombian prospect Yei Solano taking on Elias uh, Arojo from Argentina. Uh, so one thing that leaped out at me looking at the notes on Sol- Solano was that two of his three fights in 2017 were nine-round decisions. And there was not technical decisions, they were actually scheduled nine-rounders. So question number one is, who the heck fights nine-round fights? Um, I, I guess that's what they do in Colombia. <laughs> Apparently so. Maybe they can you only know? afford so many ring card girls or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah. know what, it's funny, when you when you see some of these, like you're, you're, you see odd things that happen sometimes in the Dominican Republic or, or Colombia or Ecuador, um, you know, I don't know the specifics behind that, but I did see that he had been nine rounds... Um, you know, twice. And, uh, uh, he did have a hundred, you know, he, his amateur record was reported at 118 and 12. And, uh, you know, this card in general, just the whole card is with Samson Lukowitz, who I know you're both mm-hmm. very familiar with. And, uh, Samson has provided a lot of fighters over the past to show box a lot of times as an opponent, he's had, of course, you know, world champions himself before and is, a a real boxing guy and this is his first full showbox card and uh you know you go back to like how do you get recommendations for people you know do you research them and is it hearsay is it having seen them you know when samson talks about a fighter you can pretty much be sure that uh, if he tells you the kid can fight you can fight even though in this case with solano i did see footage i know he's an aggressive counter puncher but um you know who can be a slow starter. He's taking on in a ro- uh, rojo. He's taking on a, a late replacement, and and he's a, a an experienced guy. Even though he started late in boxing, or rojo, you know he's been an Argentinian champion already. How much of a challenge is this going to be for Solano, having to face obviously a pretty decent, experienced guy as a late replacement? Yeah, I think it's a it's a big step up. I mean. Arojo is a, you know, aggressive brawler. He only had 30 amateur fights. I mean, he's a veteran. Um, you know, the fact is, it's a step-up fight for the prospect, which is what we try to do on Showbox. But at least Solano, which we talked about, has gone nine rounds twice, mm. you know, which will help versus a veteran, mm. you know, um, who's faced certainly more fighters, better opposition, and lost only once. So, the good news for Solano is that Arojo will be in front of him because he is an aggressive brawling type of person. And uh, uh, so that he'll, he'll be there for him to hit. Uh, and then for Arojo, it's sort of a must win against the prospect. And if Solano, if Solano wins, you know, it's a good step up win against, you know, a veteran. So that, as Kieran said, that's in the lightweight division. And in the co-main event, it's more lightweight action with undefeated Dominican Michelle Rivera, who's 15-0 and with 10 KOs, facing off against Mexico's Rene Tejas-Hiron, uh, 13-0 and with 7 KOs. The 21-year-old Rivera looks like the more seasoned and talented guy here, with, with probably his best win coming against previously unbeaten 2008 Olympic silver medalist Yankiel Leon. Is it fair to say he's the slight favorite going into this? And if so, what can the 20-year-old Hiron do to come away with the upset win? Yeah, it's an, it's another, it's a style matchup. I, I You know, what I saw of, of Rivera is that, um, you know, he looks, he's tall for the weight class at 5'10". He looks strong. He's a little raw right now, but he's beaten, you know, eight fighters with winning records and, and two undefeated fighters. Um I saw the Leon fight. Um, you know, he looks strong working behind his jab. I think, uh, but he likes to come forward. So he's a tall guy that likes to come forward. He likes to engage. And, uh, you know, with Giron, it's really a case. Uh, he's only 20 years old. Uh, you know, he's a little raw. He's very short and stocky. You know what he has to do, and that's to get in, get inside because he's giving up that five uh, you know, that five inch, uh, height and I'm sure significant reach advantage. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, but I think from what we've seen with Giron, he does have some strength to possibly get inside. So, uh, you know, hopefully he'll bring the fight. But I don't think that even though the taller Rivera may be at best to fight at a distance, uh, he does tend to uh, mix it up inside. So hopefully an entertaining fight for the fans. Well, you mentioned Rivera being tall. The main event, who got tall? Um, in one corner of this 154-pound main event, Sebastian the Towering Inferno Fondura is aptly named, not because he's 12-0 and 0 with eight KOs, but because what really stands out is that I had to look at this a couple of times to make sure this wasn't the typo, is that he is six six and a half. That's like Anthony Joshua height in a junior middleweight's body. Um, and not only is he tall, he's a southpaw, and he throws a lot of punches, and he says he likes to fight outside. He sounds like the kind of guy, Gordon, who's a nightmare for opponents, possibly a dream for fans. Tell us about this guy and how high do you think his upside is? Well, I mean, to what you said is <clears throat> nobody would think that a fighter would want to fight against what his advantages right. normally would be. I mean, you know, at six, six and a half, six, seven, however it is reported, uh, you know, he's only, he's, he's somebody that loves to fight inside. Um, you know, he had, um, I mean, I, I was surprised. Samson mentioned this, this, you know, Sebastian to me, like about a year ago, I'm thinking six, seven, oh, he's tall, he's lanky. You know, we've had Alantes Fox on right, and Michael right. Fox, both really nice, but tall, you know, six, four, six, five, 140 pounders. Here, we're going to go to a six, seven. They don't necessarily make for interesting fights. Right. And then I actually saw him fight on an FS1 show or a Fox show. And I said, oh, my goodness. I mean, <laughs> here is a guy that uh, throws punches in bunches at 6'7", loves to be inside, has a tremendous, you know, uppercut, uh, and, uh, you know, and has some power, you know, which um, he's fun to watch, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it's, it should be really interesting to see, uh, you know, how fans respond to him. I mean, this is the kind of guy who... Yeah, this kind of package doesn't come along very often. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I, I remember um, seeing Guillermo Jones in this division, you know, 20 or so years ago. He was 6'4", and it seemed that that was like the absolute maximum height you could possibly be to fight at this weight. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, Fandora, his his build is mind-boggling. He, he's so fun and, frankly, weird to watch fight um but uh he's up against uh mexico's manuel baby zapeda who will be turning 22 on fight day uh, a lot of young guys on this card making uh, making all of us feel old uh but uh, yeah. zapeda is uh is 16 and 0 one no contest just four knockouts and as is often the case with boxers making their showbox debut there aren't any names that are recognizable to most of us um and indeed there's some dispute between what he says his record is and what fight facts and box record report uh but he, he's fought almost exclusively in tijuana and generally speaking if you're a tijuana fighter and you're undefeated there's a good chance you can fight um so what are you expecting to see from zapeda and are you hopeful that, that he can bring out the best in fondura yeah um you know i think that zapeda you know he comes from a family of fighters he is a fighter there's no doubt about it he's clearly not a puncher with only four KOs and, you know, 17 fights, you know, he's a boxer first, he's going to throw combinations, he will engage. And, uh, you know, you worry about like, if, if, if Fondora really fought as some people might think he does with his size and height and reach, then you would think this would be a, probably a poor matchup. But um, the fact that Fandora will engage Zapata because Zapata is sort of a boxer but throws combinations. He will engage, but Fandora will probably press the action uh, just as much as Zapata would, if not even more. And, you know, Fandora looks for KOs, and he's never been past six rounds. Zapata's been eight rounds three times and uh, ten rounds once. And he's gone the distance in his last five fights. So, he can't bust a grape. We know that. But if Zapata can get Fondora to the later rounds, he may have a chance. And uh, it's really a lot of cases, you know, Fondora's just an interesting guy. You want to have him on. Um, and it's the first time we've seen him. And, you know, Zapata, you know, he's 22 years old. He had 60 amateur fights. He fits the bill. He's going to come to fight and, uh, you know, look for a good, a good matchup. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of weird when you've got the the shorter guy is the one who's going to be looking to jab and box. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is. It's it's um, you know, you yeah, you'd you'd you'd, you'd probably like to have a, a Garone type of fighter style going in after uh, Fandora, but you know, like we said, Fandora likes to mix it up. He likes to get into right. a fight. So right. if 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 Zapata's boxing him and staying at a distance, Fandora is going to be coming in regardless right. of what's best for him. Right. Um, as I mentioned at the top, this card comes from Sloan, Iowa, which is not exactly renowned as a boxing hotbed. Um, yep. uh, and of course, that's actually one of the features of Showbox, of course. It's not just that the fighters are often uh, are generally less well-known, but the locations are not exactly the MGM Grand or Madison Square Garden. Um, and that can come with some additional challenges. Uh, the first card you had this year, of course, there was a long delay when one of the ring ropes came loose. Um, Looking back on the last 18 years and all the places you've been and all the fighters that you've had, do any particular nights or fights or events or moments stand out to you? Well, I, I could, first of all, I have to preface about showbox because we all make, all of us that are on the series, we always make a joke out of the fact it's not a showbox unless it's like two flights and a two hour drop. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we, we are not going. Uh, you will not find, uh, you know, um, you know, a Ritz Carlton or a Four Seasons anywhere in the in the uh, vicinity. And uh, we are in very remote places, but uh, you know, that's where young fighters start from. So, um, you know, as far as the, the over the 18 years, there's a lot of uh, I hope memorable experiences, you know. And I've got plenty, but I wouldn't want to bore you. But uh, you know, we. Um, you know, I will tell you, if you never saw Ebo Elder face Courtney Burton mm. in 2004 on Showbox, Google it. It was one of the best fights we ever had on Showbox, you know, and other than, you know, we've had recent wars and Ivan Baranchik against Abel Ramos not long ago. But uh, I think the most memorable for all of us on Showbox, there's a couple things that stand out, both the, 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 the good and the bad of of just being in a series for 18 years. Uh, you know, the most memorable showbox for our crew was following Timothy Bradley over to England. You know, he was making his fourth showbox appearance. We brought him along. We all thought we were part of his camp. Mm -hmm. And he faced Junior Whittle for the title in England. We all flew over. We did it. We felt like we were in the ring, you know, having brought him along and seeing him win the world title. Uh, you know, it was it was really it's like this is what the culmination of what we try to do on Showbox. We try to find young prospects. We try to match them tough. We try to develop them. We try to turn prospects into contenders and hopefully eventually world champions. And with Timothy Bradley, you know, though we've had, you know, 80 fighters fight on Showbox and go on and win a world title. You know, that was there. We took them through from the beginning to the end. And there's nothing better than that. You know, helping to bring exposure to women's boxing with Clarissa is something we're proud of. But I can't talk about Showbox and, 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 uh, without talking about a somber note. And that's, you know, another unforgettable, memorable Showbox was when, you know, my good friend, and I'm sure uh, a friend to anybody that ever met him, including you two, yeah. when Nick Charles had to say goodbye mm. to Showbox in 2010 because of, you know, his battle with cancer. But Nick was there on the ground floor for us. And I can talk about all the fights and everything else, mm. but when you grow a series and come together like we did, you know, Nick was one of a kind. And his passion for showbox and, you know, his love for boxing and of young fighters was, was great. And, uh, you know, he'll always be, you know, a part of, uh, of our showbox group. Yeah. But... Uh, a lot, a lot of memorable, you know, moments bringing up, you know, you mentioned Tyson Fury. Goodness, we went over to England. We saw Tyson Fury. You know, all the fighters that we've had on that, uh, you know, Andre Ward, we had on uh, five times on Showbox, helped develop his career. And the things that we were able to do, I'm most proud of the fact of just being around for 18 years. We start our 19th season in July, and to be able to have the opportunity to take these young fighters, help develop them, have, have them see, watch them come into meetings with just like two other people, you know, before <laughs> the entourage, before the sunglasses, you know, before, uh, you know, they're tarnished. It is a yeah. great experience. And you as being journalists, 
you know, can appreciate, and I know you're well aware of the stories in boxing. People will say, there's no better stories in boxing, yeah. you know, and to see these kids grow. So I'm really proud of, uh, you know, what we've done on the series and what we've been able to do, most importantly, for the fighters. Hearing you talk about Timmy, it makes me wonder, do you allow yourself a little bit of a feeling of sort of almost paternalistic pride when one of your alums does go on to be a world champion? Well, I, I do. And I can tell you that when I went to the Biter, Boxing Writers Association dinner two weeks ago and I saw Regis Progre come into the room, who was the latest fighter, uh, you know, that fought on Showbox. We had him on three times uh, and win a world title. I went over and, and, and said hello to him. And, you know, he said thank you and, um, you know, appreciates the opportunity that, that was given to him on, you know, on Showtime. And um, I think a lot of these fighters, because there isn't a platform where you're getting exposure when you had 10, 12, you know, 15 fights and get three shots, you know, at, at the TV exposure to, to give yourself some recognition yeah. and some confidence and going on to hopefully get those title bouts and, and hopefully win. So I do. Yeah. And you mentioned a lot of great memories and fights and fighters and, and, and moments there. There was one I, I was I was I would have bet money that you were going to mention. Uh, one thing that you didn't mention was the the legendary double knockdown between uh, Sekou Powell and oh. Cornelius Bundridge. That's always the first thing I think of when I think of Showbox. Just oh, that you know what? Crazy That's very moment. funny. We used. Yeah, we used to have that in our open a lot, and I do remember it, uh, and uh, yeah, if those things don't happen very often. Uh, I do remember it. It would have been, you know, if I delve further into uh, what I wanted to say, and I'm talking probably more than you ever want me to anyway, but uh, that probably would have been on the list. Okay, good. I, I, I feel better that it was it was in the next tier somewhere. Okay, good. Um, yeah. So, so... Wrapping up by sort of spinning forward a, a bit here, you know, we've seen some excellent performances so far this year on Showbox. Um, Devin Haney has decided to move on to new pastures, but, uh, you know, Ruben Villa and, and uh, Xavier Martinez ha have really impressed as well. And then there's a personal favorite of mine that we saw this year, Thomas Patrick Ward. I loved watching him. Any expectation about any of those fighters being back this year and just any other nice surprises lined up for us on Showbox? Yeah, we, um, as far as what's coming up, let's see. Um, well, Ruben Villa, um, we'll probably look to get him back before the end of uh, the year. Um, uh, Xavier Martinez uh, spoke with Leonard Ellerby not that long ago in the last month or so about the possibility of bringing him back. I'd like to get Jerron Ennis, who I think is a real future champion, mm. uh, back on. Um, and... Uh, just uh, got the heavyweights, Jermaine Franklin and Otto oh, yeah. Valin coming up. You know, you mentioned Thomas Patrick Ward, who I had really wasn't as familiar with. He came on and had a great performance on Showbox. Uh, talked with Dimitri Salida recently about possibly we're going to be doing bringing Clarissa Shields back in uh, August right. for her to go right. for her third division title and be the first fighter to have three division wins should she... Uh, three division titles should she win in, uh, in, in 10 fights first in, in boxing history, but talk to, talk to, uh, Dimitri about possibly bringing Thomas onto that as a co-feature. Hmm. Um, yeah, he was, he was someone that I wasn't that familiar with and, uh, yeah, had a great performance on Showbox. So talking with Ringstar about, uh, some of their young prospects, Carlos Balderas, Mandolfo Delgado. Yeah. So there's, um, uh, there's plenty of opportunities. Unfortunately, we don't do a show a week, so uh, <laughs> you know it's a little. You try to try to uh, narrow them down and and put hopefully the best shows together we can. Right. Well, awesome. Gordon, it's been awesome to have you on. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us, and uh, hope you've enjoyed it. And um, best of luck with the card coming up in Iowa and with Showbox and everything else over the coming year. And we'll see you ringside soon. I'm sure. Great. All right, appreciate you having me on. You Thanks so you. much, Thank Gordon. Okay, it's prediction time, uh, and a reminder that you can make predictions and win prizes. Uh, we told you last week, we're telling you again, because some of you 
You know who you are. Some of you need to be yeah. told things twice. Uh, this Showbox card offers another opportunity to play the Showtime Boxing Pick'em game on DraftKings. Just go to DraftKings.com Showtime and make your predictions for all three fights on this card. If you nail the picks, you can get a share of a $5,000 prize pool and a Showtime swag bag. And I have to say, Kieran, you can never have too much swag. Certainly not. Or bags in which to put the swag. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you, you re- they really go together, swag and bags, I found. Yes. Um, in addition to the prizes for doing well picking these fights, there's a season-long grand prize of a trip to every 2020 Showtime Championship boxing event. This is the best kind of sports gambling, really. Uh, the kind where you can't lose anything. You can only mm. win. Uh, so again, DraftKings.com slash Showtime. Get in there before Friday's Showbox card featuring Sebastian Fundora versus Hector Zapata begins. As for our predictions on this podcast, uh, we won't be picking the whole card, as is always the case with Showbox. We'll just be picking the main event. I'm still ahead by five points in our competition, 44 to 39. Kieran, it's your turn to go first. Who do you have between Fundora and Zapata? What was the word you just used to describe Fundora when we were talking with with Gordon? Like weird to watch him or something like that. <laughs> I, I believe I dropped a weird in there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and he is he's he's a sight to behold. Um, uh, we already talked about there being nobody quite like Tyson Fury. I don't think there's anything quite like uh, Sebastian Fundora. He's um, there doesn't seem to be anything especially unpredictable about him. You know that if you give him the opportunity, he's just going to come at you, churning forward, throwing punches. Um, and as you'd expect from a tall guy fighting in close, he has a hell of an uppercut. Um, but if he's predictable, it doesn't seem to make him any easier for people to combat just because of his, you know, his physical freakery. Um, uh, Zepeda, in contrast, uh, seems like a nice, from what little I've seen of him, a nice classic in and out box. So we didn't get very much good video of him to look at. But from what there was, he looked to me to have good form, be nice and compact, nice straight punches, good defense. But he does seem like he might move in and out a little bit more than he does side to side. That could be a bit of a problem. Um, Holding your hands up high and in front of your face, as he does, is often a good idea. But when you're faced with a guy like Fondora, who's going to be, who has freakishly long arms and punches Mm -hmm. coming from above and below, as well as straight on, um, it might not be uh, that beneficial. Um, So from what I've seen of Fondora, the one way to have some kind of success against him is to try to smother him, uh, try to stop him getting any kind of leverage at all. Um, Vishon Owens looked like he was having some success with that at times in his fight with Fondora. Well, until he wasn't. Um, and that's the problem, really. Um, you know you know what the, you know what this matchup made me think of a little bit? Um, is Carlos Quintana and Paul Williams. Mm. Um, both in terms of the contrast in styles, and the real contrast in ways in which a contest like this can go. Right. Um, you know, Williams, of course, for those who've forgotten, he was a lanky welterweight with a high punch output. Nobody was eager to face. But in their first meeting, Quintana did a really good job of like moving laterally, not giving Williams an easy target. He moved in and out rapidly, cracked him with short right hands, and then smothered him and tied him up close. And that's kind of, I think, what Zepeda has to try to do to Fondora. The problem is... If you're going to fight that kind of a fight against a guy like that, you pretty much need everything to go right. And it only needs to go wrong once to, to be like at the, the end of a long punch, uh, power punch, for everything to go disastrously wrong. And the first time Quintana faced Williams, everything went right. The second time he faced him, it didn't take long for everything to just go calamitously wrong. And, and, he, and he, you know, he's out of there inside a round. So... I suspect this will wind up somewhere between those two. I think Zepeda maybe give Fondura uh, a couple of looks he isn't familiar with early on. Fondura perhaps working outside more than he's used to, but when you're his size and shape, that isn't necessarily a problem. It might be good for him to figure out how to fight um, from the outside, uh, given that he's like 12 feet tall. Um, It might even work to his advantage. He might find that, hey, I can get some more extension on my punches. They have even more power to them. So he may end up perhaps landing fewer of those punches than he's used to early on. But I think he'll throw enough and land enough with bad intentions that he'll find, he'll find his way through eventually. The TLDR here, uh, Fondura by stoppage, seventh round. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll tell you something right now, Kieran. You can't spell Fondora without fun. Yeah. They should put that on the fight poster. That's right. I'm giving him that one for free. Uh, but he really is a fun fighter, and 
just a freak of nature. There's something irresistible about Fundora. Um, I'm far less familiar with Zepeda, so I'm mostly making my prediction based on believing in Fundora and in him wanting to entertain in his Showtime debut and make a splash. So I'm also taking Fundora by stoppage. I'm thinking maybe a little quicker than you had it. I'm saying Fundora KO5. You know, if, if I'm Zepeda, I'm targeting that body. Uh, mm. it, who, who knows if Fundora can last 10 rounds when he's never gone beyond six before if you're hitting him to the body. Uh, that's the way to really have a shot to do some damage and, and slow him down. There's a lot of body there. But, you know, even though there that does seem to be a path for Zepeda to maybe make things interesting, it seems to me like a case where whatever he's going to try, it just feels like Fundora is going to be too much for him. So we're, we're on pretty much the same page here, just a slight difference in the round. I'm picking the fifth. You've got the seventh. KO6 it is then, by all accounts, I would by suspect. Yep. There you go. All right. That will do it for another edition of the podcast. We will be back next week, possibly a, a smidgen later in the week than usual due to travel and other commitments. But it will be worth the wait, I assure you. We will have another guest joining us as we dissect the Showbox card and look ahead to Showtime Championship Boxing from Houston as Jamal Charlo takes on Brandon Adams. And it's possible, just possible, that therein lies a clue as to our guests. Yeah, that'll keep you thinking. <laughs> so enjoy the next week as you ponder who that guest might be. And until then, thanks for listening.